Today, our scripture lesson is coming from one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Proverbs. It's sandwiched between Psalms and Ecclesiastes. And while Solomon is attributed with a lot of the material, we know other authors wrote it in it as well. Uh, There's a basic theme in Proverbs that there are spiritual principles, just like physical laws, that underlie the cosmos. And the wise person discovers what these principles are and practices them. Proverbs has 31 chapters. That means in a normal month that you can read one chapter a day and read the entire book in a month. If you haven't done so previously or if you're ready to do it the next time, I would encourage you to do so. It is full of amazing Proverbs and advice that will help you understand how to live daily life and faith. So our scripture lesson comes from Proverbs chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Listen closely for God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Here's the very heart of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Amen. In his book that's entitled Letters to God, Stuart Hample collected letters written by boys and girls to the Lord God Almighty. Let me share just a few of the selections. One was, Dear God, when did you know you were God? Are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? Do artificial flowers make you mad? They'd make me mad if I made the real ones. Instead of letting people die and creating new ones, why don't you just hold on to the ones you got? And then from a slightly older child, Dear God, I've tried to read the Bible. I don't understand what the word begat means. And no adult will explain it to me. Well, during August, we have been considering questions by children of all ages. And our FAQ series has looked at frequently asked questions by Christians. If you've been with us, we've looked at questions like, How can I know that I'm saved? What's God's will for my life? Do miracles still happen? And what is heaven like? I prepared for the series last spring by posing on Facebook the question, what would you like to see addressed? And there were many different responses. So as we culminate the series, I'm looking at seven different FAQs and briefly responding to each in turn. There was a cluster of questions that asked about science and faith in general, and evolution in Christianity in particular. One person wrote, is it possible to believe in evolution and creationism? The Bible does not directly address the relationship between faith and science. And there is a very simple reason for this if you just think about it for a moment. The Bible predates a scientific understanding of the world. 
So when you open the pages of Scripture, you are traveling back in time and experiencing an ancient worldview. For example, when you read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then move on into the Hebrew Scriptures, you discover that there was an understanding that the world was flat and the center of the cosmos, and that God had placed a big dome or bowl over it to separate the seas, land, and sky from the watery chaos all about it. And what we discover over and again is that science and theology in many ways speak two different languages even though they overlap. People get real tied up about the question of creationism versus evolution. I don't see a conflict between the two. One is talking about the source of creation and another is describing a way it could have possibly taken place. Adam Hamilton in his book on various controversies the church faces, said, evolution is not the enemy of Christian faith. It's merely a way of talking about a possible process God used to develop the wonders of the world about us. Science and theology are not in conflict. Anything that science reveals should deepen our faith. From discoveries about subatomic particles to galactic grandeur, through the lens of faith, we see God's fingerprints all over the world, all over the universe. And it comes down to the fact that we are addressing two different sets of questions. Science asks questions of what, when, where, and how. Theology answers the questions of who and why. The second question asked about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And the question said, Jesus was a Jew. Shouldn't we be both Jews and Christians at least observing the Jewish holidays? It's a great question. Now, I'm not sure, this may have been a child just wanting to double up their holidays. I'm not sure about that. But when you begin to look at Scripture... We divide, as Christians, the Bible into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is Hebrew Scripture, Jewish Scripture. And we honor it as the revealed, inspired Word of God. Christianity flowed out of Judaism. And the Judeo-Christian heritage honors the same patriarchs and the same matriarchs. Jesus was a Jew. The original apostles were Jewish. The early church in Jerusalem was exclusively Jewish as well. Then you get after the four Gospels to the Acts of the Apostles, which describes the spread of the church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And imagine what happens as the Gospel spreads. Non-Jews or Gentiles enter the church and the faith. And one of the early controversies and challenges of the New Testament church was this. Do you have to be Jewish in order to be Christian? And it threatened to split the church. Eventually, they met in what was known as the Council of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Council. And if you want to read more, it's in Acts chapter 15. And they ultimately decided, no, you don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow all the dietary laws of keeping a kosher diet. You don't have to follow all the Old Testament mandates while still honoring a Jewish heritage, recognizing that we believe in Christ. God has formed a new covenant, a new relationship, a new testament with God's people. 
and that we come to salvation by grace through faith. The next question was, when is Jesus returning and the world is going to come to an end? I've got a short answer to that one and a slightly longer answer to that one. The short answer is this. I don't know. The slightly longer answer recognizes that God is the God of history. It's his story. And that we do believe there will come a day when this world will come to an end. And one of the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ will return. We sometimes call this the second coming of Christ. If you've done any theological studies, it's sometimes called the parousia or the eschaton. And we lean into that future with a certainty that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. Everything occurs within the context of God's providence and God's reign. But when all these things will unfold, well, let's go to the source, Jesus himself. This is what he said. No one knows about that day or hour, not the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. And he went on to say, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the Lord will come. Let me say that again. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And yet that has not kept people from trying to figure out the week, month, and year. And I have known people in my life who, who just get fascinated with this topic and they want to cross-reference uh, current events with the Bible and they become so heaven-bound that they're no earthly good. And we've seen in contemporary times of various prophecies of the world coming to an end, stretching back to 1948 when Israel became a nation. And there were scholars who said, okay, the countdown's begun. In 1970, Hal Lindsey published a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, sold 28 million copies, predicted the world would come to an end in the 1980s. He is still publishing sequels 50 years later. There was also an author named Edgar Wisenhunt, who in 1988, the rapture is another way of talking about Jesus coming. And in 1988, he published a book that was entitled 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. It was followed up with a less successful sequel. I'm not making this up. That was entitled 89 Reasons the Rapture Will Occur in 1989. And then there was a very popular book back in the early 2000s that was entitled The Bible Code. Some of you may have read it. Uh, this scholar looked at the original Hebrew in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and believed there was an underlying code that could be discerned, and he figured out that a giant comet was going to hit the earth in 2012. If you don't follow the news, it didn't. Time and time again, we get so wrapped up in the details and the minutia when we need to focus on the big picture. That whatever happens, God's got us in God's hands. And so, we live a life of faith. And there's something I've, I've said on several occasions in the past to the church in sermons. Within our lifetimes, I can make two predictions. And I can 100% guarantee you they're absolutely accurate. In our lifetimes, either Jesus will return or we're going to die. I can guarantee that. And we don't know the day or the hour for either. So the solution is to live 
prepared lives, always ready for whatever happens and presenting ourselves as workers approved to the Lord. The next question is a little bit longer. It's talking about salvation and universalism. It said, why does geographical determinism determine a person's salvation? Or does it? Is a devout Hindi or Buddhist who is, is a devout Hindi or Buddhist born on the other side of the world doomed to separation from God after death? That is a very deep question. And I'm going to respond to it, first of all, with an old joke that I'm not really sure is all that funny, but it does get to a point, so bear with me. Once upon a time, there was a Christian and an atheist that were having a conversation. And the atheist asked the Christian, why are you a Christian? And the Christian thought about it for a moment and said, well, you know, my parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. My great-grandparents were Christians. That's why I'm a Christian. And the atheist sneered at that answer and said, well, what if your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents had all been idiots? And the Christian smiled and said, well, I, I suppose I'd have been an atheist. <laughs> Thank you, Martha. I appreciate that. <laughs> the point of the story is this. Every one of us are a mixture of three different elements. There's genetics, there's environment, and there's choice. And two of those three, we don't get a say in. Genetics, how, how we're born, what is our hard wiring, our heredity. Environment, the home in which we are raised in, the culture and the geographic location. The only thing we really have a say in is the decisions we make when we become responsible adults. So consider two radically different situations. A child born in the southern United States to a Christian family that is brought to church every Sunday. And a, a child born in Kazakhstan with no parents raised in an orphanage and the only instruction they're given is either in Islam or in communism. How can anyone possibly hold those two children to the same standard? And it's something the church has wrestled with for years. It doesn't remove, in fact, it emphasizes the fact we're called to proclaim the gospel to the entire world because we believe Christian faith is not just about eternal life, it's about abundant life here and now, and it's something so good we can't help but share it. But even the Apostle Paul back in the first century wrestled with this, and he wrote in Romans, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen being understood by what has been made so that people are without an excuse. What I think Paul is saying is that God's fingerprints are so much over all the world that any discerning person at least recognizes there's a God even if they've never heard the gospel. This is one of those points where I'm just really glad that I'm not God. And you really ought to rejoice in that knowledge as well. I'm willing to tend my own patch and leave those larger decisions to God, but at the same time believe that my faith is so important to me that I am called to share it with others. The next bundle of questions all contain the same word, and the word was, why? We've heard these, we've asked these. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do children suffer? One person said, why did God make me so special with asthma and allergies? 
And boy, this is at the very heart of our faith, and it's a question we all wrestle with. When you go back to Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Job is the oldest short story we know of in existence. And guess what Job was dealing with? The question of why. And theology is called the Odyssey. Of, of why do all these things happen? And if you've ever read the book of Job, well, well, by the time I end up at the conclusion, I'm about as confused as when I started. Frederick Buechner, and you've heard me quote him many times, one of my favorite authors, he says that we as Christians believe in three things. We believe God is all-powerful, we believe God is all good, and we believe that bad things happen. And he goes on to say it's easy to reconcile any two of those three. But when you put all three of them together, it's a real challenge. If God wasn't all good, if God wasn't all powerful, then it'd be easy to explain bad things. But putting it all together, how do you respond to the question of why? There are at least two indicators, two hints that you find in the opening pages of Genesis. The first is that Genesis tells us God created us in God's image. And part of that package means that God gave us free will. Remember what I talked about earlier, environment, heredity, and choice? Well, Adam and Eve chose And any parent here who has ever raised a child or a grandchild gets this. You can tell your children what to do. You can share from your experience. You can give them advice. And you know what they're going to do? Whatever they decide to do. And then they bear the consequences of it. That's what happens with Adam and Eve. They choose poorly. And sin enters into the world. Which is the second thing we discover in Genesis chapter 3. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes you can discern a causal relationship that we suffer because of the poor choices we make. We suffer because of the poor choices others make. But other times there is no discernible reason or cause that we can figure out. And that's not a real satisfying answer to the question. But it's about the best I've got. We also believe as Christians that God does not cause, but uses evil in our lives when trials and suffering occur. Here, let me say that last part again. God does not cause, but can use. James says, consider it pure joy. Yeah, right. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. I wish that wasn't true. But if you look back over your own faith journey as I do mine, it's those times of trial and suffering that can lead to a deeper faith in our lives. Next question asks, does the United Methodist Church acknowledge and venerate the saints and Roman Catholic tradition? My disclaimer here is I'm not an expert in Roman Catholic theology. But just a broad understanding is that in the Roman Catholic Church, there are certain extraordinary Christians of exemplary faith that are recognized as saints. And there's a formal process that's called canonization where the church identifies and eventually vets these persons as saints. And each saint has a feast day or a saint's day 
typically it's associated with the day they were martyred or the day that they died. In addition, the Roman Catholic Church talks about patron saints of either individuals or of groups that serve as intercessors in heaven for those who pray to God. The United Methodist Church in particular, and most Protestant churches in general, go back to a New Testament understanding of the word saint. It literally means holy one. And in the New Testament, it is a synonym for the word Christian. Every Christian is a saint. Every saint is a Christian. Not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done for us. The Methodist Church observes All Saints Sunday, usually on the first Sunday in November, where we remember and we honor those who have died in the church over the past year. For the most part, we do not observe the saints' holiday. We do give lip service to Patrick and Valentine, but beyond that, most of the time, we're not aware of the saints' days. And as a total aside... If you attend traditional services on occasion and you've ever recited the Apostles' Creed, there's a point in there where we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Please notice it has a small c, which means the universal church regardless of time or place. I explain that to folks and some people don't get it. I remember Bud Cochran in my first church, whenever we did the Apostles' Creed, we'd get that to that point and in a very loud voice he would say, I believe in the United Methodist Church. The final FAQ is this. Help me understand the relationship between works and faith. I know our salvation is dependent on grace and not works, but some passages talk about being judged by our works. And this goes back to one of the first uh, sermons in this series where we talked about that salvation comes by grace through faith. But that works going on to perfection is certainly important in our lives. And even Scripture is a little bit in tension because we've seen before that Paul will say, works without faith, it's dead. But you flip over to James and James will say, faith without works is dead. And then they both use Abraham with the same story to prove their point. And the reality is they're two sides to the same coin. Both faith and works are important parts of the Christian faith, but... The order is important. Faith comes first. Salvation comes by grace, God's goodwill, God's love that we don't merit or deserve, and we receive it by faith. God does not love us because we are pure and lovely. We become pure and lovely because God loves us. Works occur in response to what God has done in our lives, not to earn God's merit or to work our way into salvation, but to continue that process of being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. And we always boil it back down to the two commandments, to love God and to love neighbor as self. So that's our facts series. We probably didn't get to some of the questions you were hoping to have addressed. I've had a lot of fun with this series, and we will probably revisit it in a year or two and look at some other questions that God's children of all ages answer. If you're seeking answers, though, God has given us means of grace that help us to discern how God responds to our questions. And they come through Bible study and prayer and worship and fellowship and Sunday school and other aspects of the Christian faith. And we started the series by saying, 
Jesus told us, if you ask, you're going to receive it. If you seek it, you're going to find it. If you knock, the door will be opened. Our scripture passage today in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then we grow step by step and day by day. Now, in my Facebook survey, there was one other question that got expressed several times, much to my concern. And it said that people just like you, sitting in church on Sunday morning, have this frequently asked question. When will this sermon ever end? (laughs) And the answer is, now. (laughs) Let us pray. Gracious God, teach us that questions and doubts are a vehicle to answers and faith, that they're not the opposite of belief, but they are an opportunity for us to wrestle, to strive, to discern what we believe is your people. And every time we do so, we come out stronger on the other end. So we claim your promises that when we ask, we shall receive. When we seek, we shall find. When we knock, the door will be open. Remind us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. Help us to pursue it with the entirety of our lives. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.